0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the European VC Podcast. I am David, and I am joined, as usual, by my dear co-founder, Andreas. Today, we have Sean with us. Sean is a managing general partner at SOSV, a global multi-stage venture capital firm that operates early-stage startup development programs, notably Hacks, IndieBio, and Orbit Startups. They are the first check in deep tech starting at pre-seed stage. SOSV has 1.5 billion USD in AUM and an established portfolio of a thousand plus companies, including the names of Upside Foods, Perfect Day, OpenTrons, Firm Labs, etc. Sean is also on the board of Khan Academy, the Tyndall Institute, the Autism Impact Alliance, the Brain Foundation, and a number of private companies. If you're listening in and love our show, drop us a review, follow the pod, and subscribe at (laughs) EU.vc.
1: down this
0: wall it's more than just an alliance alliance. this this is a union of values values
2: united and determined we can serve as a model for other regions regions of the the world world. the nature
0: of a problem problem requires a european response europe
2: is a story of new beginnings new new beginnings let's start acting this show is not investment advice, and the hosts
1: of this episode may be invested in the funds and companies featured.
2: All right, Sean, I saw you really enjoying our uh, very European jingle there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got to love the dance throb music there.
2: <laughs> there's there's nothing better than marrying uh, uh, Merkel and uh, dance throb, for sure. <laughs> but, Sean, <John, laughs> let's kick this thing off with, uh, with your path into venture. Would you give us your story? Tell us, who, who's Sean? How did you get here?
1: How did I get into venture? So my journey into venture started when I was uh, graduating from university, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. I started a company called MapInfo. If you've ever typed an address into a computer or onto your smartphone and seen a street map, like to get around or whatever, that's what we invented. Uh, It became a very uh, successful company. It became a big public company. Um, It went public in 1993 before both of you guys were born. Um, and I was, uh, we were born, we were, born, were born, I must say,
0: <laughs> I was, well, I was very, very young. I was one year old. Okay. Say. Okay. Okay. So, but I don't but think it, we saw that as a user though. No. Yeah. Well, it was, it was
1: more for the com- commercial users and putting uh, data on street maps and whatnot. We had hundreds, thousands of, uh, people who built our technology into their products. And, and so. You know, we, the first million people ever to do this, this sort of technology, 98% of them did it on MapInfo, and then others uh, obviously came off uh, later. The, the Google Maps and whatnot is a, a great derivative product that we really love and think is added a lot of value to the world. But I grew to a couple hundred million re- dollars in revenue. I I left the company after it went public and uh, actually went into the field of uh, music. I, I made some music, uh, but you know, some friends of mine pulled me back into the tech industry. Got me to start another startup, Netcentric, uh, where we had the idea for you know so- you know software inside the internet, or as we coined the term, cloud computing. There, it was a a, a big uh, idea. But when the dot bomb era hit uh, in 2001, we had I think eight million in revenue and $10 in expenses, and that just didn't cut it in a world where you needed to be having more revenue than expenses. So we went out of business, sold for pennies on a dollar, and uh, you learn as much from uh, failing as you do from succeeding. It still hurt a lot, but that was my start uh, into venture. I guess throughout all that time, after my first company went public, I was investing. I was a super angel, uh, investing at the sort of quarter of a million or half a million dollar level into uh, pre-seed startups, Um, and several of the investments did really well, um, including companies that got acquired by public companies, a company that went public, other companies that uh, sold for hundreds of millions of dollars. And so after the amount of money that I was managing through all of that uh, grew to the low hundreds of millions of dollars, I, I decided to make it formal and say, I am now a VC and that is how SOSV uh, came into being. I hired a, a back office and, and, and brought on other partners. And, and now we uh, deploy the capital and tend
0: the flock. <laughs> I, uh, I um, you know, Sean, I feel like I can risk and say that you have a really diverse, unexpected background and just, you know, to shed some light on that. And we, we will share some links to the listeners that want to hear more about these stories. But, you know, you have a a background going from janitor to entrepreneur, rock star, filmmaker. You were in Iraq, you ran a humanitarian humanitarian organization. I know like there's this weird story about you also having your eye, your eye eaten by a steroids induced (laughs) viral infection and to more recently even being a a TV star in Ireland. Right. And so, and I, and I feel like I could go on (laughs) if I, if I listed uh, all the interesting things in your background. So I'm very excited to ask you this question, which is, would you share with us a pivotal moment in your life and how it has shaped you as an investor today?
1: well i would say you know the first pivotal moment in my life and let's we'll just stick with that one uh It was how I went from being a janitor at my high school to being a programmer um, in uh when I was fourteen so i was uh i grew up really poor and so we were on welfare uh there, my mom had we had a deadbeat dad there were nine kids and so uh we for six years were on the welfare system in the united states so They had a program for the poorest of the poor, which was called the Civilian Employment Training Act. And you could get a job theoretically on something that was hopefully helping you develop a career. So they gave me a job as a janitor. And I worked in in my high school. And I figured out that um, you can't wait for something to be handed to you. You have to go and seize it. So I found another job where I thought I could actually do uh, something which would actually advance me. Uh, I I knew that there was a there was a government agency in town that had a computer, and I said I want to go be a programmer. So I asked the person who was running that, just knocked on the door, asked for a meeting. He was open. I stepped into his office and I asked him, Hey, can I just do something here? You know, can I change the tapes on yeah. the on the on the machines? Can I do punch cards or whatever it is that you do here? And, uh, and he uh, said yes. And then I then became a programmer. And, uh, you know, that helped shape my life.
2: That's, that's, I think I, one of the most important things for an entrepreneur is, is that moment where we realize that you have to seize what you want to get it. Uh, no one is going to hand it to you. I'd love to ask you a, Question about your investment into Netflix because that's that that's something that I think that most people would think ah, that must have been a pretty pretty wild ride.
1: Well, actually, I originally invested through net, into Netflix through a VC fund that I was an LP in, um, and so I was uh, I really liked the company. They had the r- red envelopes back then, so this is like yeah. pre digital distribution, pre streaming and uh so then they went public and then they just crashed uh you know the 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 stock went to a very very low valuation and i actually bought most of my position in in at the ipo or not post ipo i would say so it it went down at very very low valuation i bought like two percent of the company if i'd held on to all of that it would be worth several billion dollars but i sold sold over the years um and uh made Plenty of good returns on that, but just the same, that's how I got into Netflix. I, I asked the, the VC to, you know, if I could meet with uh, the founders. And so they introduced me to Reed Hastings and, and I stayed uh, with that company for many, many years through the transition to streaming and, and through all of that. Yeah. And, you know, a big believer in, in their huge success and always kind of shocked as well as how much capital they had access to and the, sort of the stratospheric valuations. So I sort of diversified and went into other sort of more value-based stocks. Uh, you know, later on, like Apple, when Apple was, uh, you know, uh, a very low-value uh, company. So that that those things were uh, sort of my lessons in in uh, getting into Netflix and actually how you can actually ride a wave for a very, very, very long time. Uh, you know. Netflix has been around for, you know, way more than 20 years, 25 years. And, uh, you know, it, it keeps increasing in value, you know, pretty substantially. And so has Apple, you know, when I bought into Apple, I don't know, it was a couple hundred million dollar valuation for the whole company. Right. And, (laughs) and so, you know, maybe it was a billion dollar valuation and now it's a trillion dollar valuation, right? So a couple of trillion, three trillion. So, you know, those are, those are, you can ride a wave for a really, really long time if you get a winner stick on, stick on the back of that course.
2: Yeah. And and I think that this ties and we should, you know, we've got a lot of conversation around Mm SOSV and and your investment strategy and so on. But now you saying this, I cannot help but want to just scratch a little bit deeper and say you are a multi-stage investor. And of course, you're that because of the philosophy of, you know, you want to double down on your winners. But I'm curious to you know just hear you tie what you just said with those two experiences with Netflix and 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 Apple to the reason behind you also being a multi-stage investor and to what extent would you even go in and buy up after a crash after after an IPO?
1: Yeah, well, actually, actually, we don't have that mandate in the fund. I actually invested in a VC that does have that mandate, uh, technology crossover ventures, when I was you know. Uh, you know, uh, getting going. And I actually really appreciate that approach because, you know, you can really, th- those runs can be really long runs. I would like to have that approach, but on the other hand, um, you know, that tends to tie up capital in a different way than people, uh, you know, like to when they're investing in VC funds. So we stick to the knitting and we just really work with, uh, the startups at the pre yeah. stage where we start investing and we do go to you know Series B, Series C, uh, so we are a multi-stage investor. But um, but our focus is really from you know from a couple of million valuation to sort of a couple hundred million valuation where we're buying up, and then beyond that, we we
2: uh, tend to sit on the sidelines. Let's go into the take a stand section. Take a star. All right, Sean, let's get to this uh, quote from Sabina that we want to hear your take on. It is, VCs add way less value than they think.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, we try to do a lot more than most VCs to add value. You know, we have these physical facilities. We have a huge staff. You know, we have over 120 people globally that are working with our startups. So, and, and 75% of those are working at the at the pre-seed stage. So it's really a tremendous amount at the foundation. And we know that the startups appreciate the work that we do and are happy to work with us. But fundamentally, it's always the founder's company, right? And at the time we first get involved in the companies, the founders own the majority, the vast majority of the equity of the company. They're the ones doing the 80 to 100 hour work weeks. Um, and it's really all about founders. I think VCs appear a lot of times to want to take the credit. It's it's very true that VCs can do and should be essential for getting the startup to go further, go faster, skirt unnecessary problems and all that. But all ultimately, really, it's it, if it was all about the VC, you know, why do only one in 10 investments in a VC's fund actually pr- produce these disproportionate, you know, yeah. success uh, stories? You know, it, the thing about VC is the, the, they say about VC is, it's the only job where you can be right one time out of 10 and be called a genius. And and that is, that's the truth. Because five or six times out of 10, those investments are going to go to zero or go to just a partial valuation. You have two or three investments out of 10 that earn you out of the hole. And then really one out of 10 investments that if you get it, you get to do the next fund. And if you don't get it, you're out of business. Uh, because you know, the the, the, uh, the odds are always for asymmetrical returns in VC. And uh, so it's not the VC's fault. Uh, You know, I I think VCs have a tough industry to, to, to be in. They have the faith and the courage to back companies. Most of the times the companies are going to lose money and they're going to back those companies for years of their lives, you know, spending time trying to help those companies. So I don't want to diss the VCs. This is a hard business for everyone to be in, but it is the founders ultimately that build the, the success. And you have to underline that. Uh, we're a bit along for the ride here.
0: So Sean, we've 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 been seeing obviously um, and we as an industry, of course, arise in the emphasis of this topic of planetary and hum- human health within within VC, you know whether that's existing firms doubling down on that space, increasing their allocations for those verticals or just increasing fund size. but also many emerging GPS actually that may have calmed down a bit. I don't really have data, but I remember seeing a lot of a lot of a lot of new funds or, or new projects at least popping up here and there within that space. And your approach as we kind of hinted to already, stands out from the traditional VC model in the in, in the sense that you you could provide a lot of hands-on support, but you also provide like infrastructure, core infrastructure. And I'll let you kind of deep dive into that a bit more to to startups. And that that is that is intriguing. And I would love to ask you to elaborate a bit why on the why behind that unique model because it does Take different level of investment and in not only yeah. capital, <laughs> but yeah. also. Why do you believe that positions you at the end of the day to just generate generate the outsized returns for for your LPs, your investors?
1: Well, so so the first thing is that you know the the accelerator model is is well understood, yeah. and there's a couple of people that are playing at sort of the level that SOSB plays at. So there's Y Combinator, there's 500 startups, and there's tech stars that are at the sort of volume and the sort of success level. And then there's a bunch of, there's thousands, there's literally thousands of other accelerators scattered around, er, around yeah. the world.
0: Could you just, um, Sean, could you just kind yeah. of share some big numbers there? Just so p- people that, that might not know the exact numbers oh, of FSV, sure. just to give an idea of the scale that you're now talking about.
1: Yeah. I mean, we only, we only invest in about a hundred to 125 companies a year. Um, but that generally puts us up in the top three investors globally for for seed, yep. pre-seed investors, et cetera, um, and 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 we also invest in follow-on rounds. So we are also yep. you know one of the most active Series A investors, one of the most active Series B investors. Um, and when we at the accelerator level, um, you know, you know, we came along. We sort of love the TechStars model of these cohort-based models where people are physically located alongside each other. As a matter of fact, I was one of the first backers of, of Techstars back in 2008. Um, and we also backed uh, 500 stars in their first fund uh, as well. So like, we were looking at what was going on and we were actually, we created our version of the accelerator. We we're the first in Asia. you know. We created China Accelerator. It was the first in all of Asia and the first in China to have that model. Um, but uh, what we liked is we liked taking a very different approach and having unique uh, approach to our accelerators. And that meant that instead of just trying to be a one size fits all, do all kinds of software, do all kinds of whatever business models, we became very focused and very vertical in, 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 in terms of what we were trying to do. So that's with China Accelerator, the market in China, you know, there's the great firewall, there's all these other things, you know, it's completely different than the software market anywhere else in the world. So, so, we had this model, you know, uh, of actually trying to create more vertical accelerators. And, you know, so in, in for example, creating uh, an accelerator for China and and for the Asia markets, creating a, a accelerator uh, for hardware, because, you know, when you think about it, hardware is completely different than software, right? So you need to do pick and place machines. You need to do uh, mechanical engineering and electrical engineering and and, you know, frequency and FCC approvals and things like that. So all of those, all of those different specialties, we said, okay, well, obviously it needs to be its own different program. It needs to be its own different accelerator with people who can advise and work and get real deep help to startups in those areas. And we did the same thing for life sciences. So we became the world's leading programs for the targeted areas that we do. So yeah. we're the world's most active. Life sciences investor. We're the world's most active hardware uh, investor, and we do a lot in the sort of in the Asia uh, marketplaces and the developing markets with our Orbit program. But we're not the world's most active software uh, I- investor, and we never will be. Um, so, so that's we sort of abandoned the accelerator model, and we created this more deep founder first studio model where we actually spent and and we spent tens of millions of dollars building out these facilities uh, so that people could actually build their prototypes, you know, do vacuum form, you know, uh, you know, uh, plastics and molding and and injection machines and mechanical work with five and six axis robots that we have on site, you know, pick and place machines, removing the, the the, uh, circuit boards around, et cetera. So we, we have all of this capability in this to allow the, founder to go further, faster, and that was something we did because that was before we were a regular VC. This was when I was doing it out of my own money, and I thought that this is the way it should be done. There is no way that any VC could have done that because it required too much of an investment, and you can 't do that out of a ma- out of a management fee management fee is only two percent yeah. of your of your fund size. Yeah so i was able to sort of spend the money build up these facilities and these capabilities and since then since it's been proven we've also gotten some state supports when you know new york state helped us build out our, our wet lab and they gave us 25 million dollars to help do that new jersey helped us build out our hacks uh uh facility in new jersey they gave us another 25 million to do that so it it sort of it differentiates us from other investors and certainly it any stage, but but certainly at the pre-seed stage, um, because we have these uh, capabilities um, and these facilities and the technical staff. We have 11 PhDs yeah. on, on staff, et cetera, that help with mechanical engineering and, you know, bio biomechanical and, and whatever is needed.
2: Could I ask you, Sean, because you are a global investor. You've got investments everywhere. But... Having wet labs means you've got physical places, and you're taking founders to those physical places. Um, many would argue, or, or many, maybe as an excuse for not having their own wet lab, argue that you don't, you don't do that. You don't. The best founders won't necessarily move to China to be in your wet lab. Blah blah blah. How do you, how do you position on that, on that angle?
1: yeah no i mean we we don't require them to stay for you know years uh we we only actually think that founders who are very dedicated are gonna they're gonna be able to uproot themselves for three months six months you know or 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 whatever because the business is the most important thing that they need to do the other benefit is that we have these facilities in new york city and the you know in new jersey the outlying area of new york city and in san francisco so at the same time, if you have like a European startup or somebody from India or someone from you know, South America or whatever, this gives them access to capital that they never had before. I mean, one of the reasons why you know, YC was only in Silicon Valley is the, you know, it, because it actually has the investors there.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: We, we also, New York is an up and coming, it's the number two uh, area for yeah. venture capital in the world. So we have our facilities where they can not only run, but they can also prove. I mean, these are physical companies; they're doing physical things. They actually need to have investors come and see them and see what they do. Um, and you know, they're not going to fly even to Singapore or something like that to, no, no, to back no. these companies. You know, they they have to see it with their own eyes. And we help de-risk that for for the yeah. for the investment community because they know the quality of the output that we put out, but also you know, for the, for the startups that they get to work with the best founders from all around the world, right alongside them for months at a time. And that is a huge, huge benefit for the, for the founders, uh, to, to be brought out of whatever sort of limited ecosystem they're in and to be brought to global centers of finance and
0: technology. You mentioned some stakeholders there that helped with the development of the infrastructures. Um, I'm curious to ask, you know, what, what is the partnership that you have with these entities are there lps in in the fund are there shareholders in the management company and maybe also use that as a segue to talk a bit about what's the profile of lp that sosv has proven to be like good at working with
1: sure no actually they're just they're just state agencies looking at this as an economic development opportunity and their grants yep. we just get we've just been given grants um, they've seen what we've done for the ecosystems for other areas in the world they've seen the hundreds of millions of dollars in investments They only give us a really a small amount of money relative to the economic leverage that they get, you know, $25 million over a five year period was, was what our grant was from New York state. And they've, we've already achieved in the first two years, you know, $150 million of investment into the companies. Um, and, and over the next three or four years, it'll be over a billion dollars of investment. So it's like, it's for them, it makes a lot of sense given our success, ratio of turning startups into unicorns
0: the other part of the question
1: oh sorry you asked about the lps you asked about the lps yeah yeah Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, okay lps so yeah so in, in you know they don't uh we don't need them as lps we have financial investors and institutions and and whatnot sometimes they will also invest uh capital and that's that's also you know appreciated um but uh, our, our primary uh, LPs are those that are, you know, that really care about the work that we do, the impact areas that we work in, and also the the companies that, um, you know, big corporations that are looking for ideas. There's a lot of corporate LPs uh, that 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 are uh, from all over the world, um, family offices. Uh, we have yeah. we have about 200 LPs across our various different funds, SOSB three, yeah. four, and five. And each fund has its own set of LPs. There's a huge amount of re-upping, obviously, from from one fund to, to the next, but uh, but yeah, each fund has new LPs yeah, as we, since as the first fund was $150 million fund, the second was two seventy-seven, and this third fund is a four hundred million dollar fund. So yeah, we add we add LPs as we go along.
2: And you've got thematic funds as well, right? Um, so that also I guess there you have a bit less cross pollination because you tip you often see someone committed to climate being less committed to corporate. i guess
1: we have a core fund which supports all of our programs and we have a follow-on fund which supports the you know the the companies as they are you know sort of series b and later uh, uh investments
2: okay that's cool so you run your programs as you run and this is just for our audience as well the programs are run as thematic but the fund that then invests into the opportunities in each of the programs invests across the programs
1: yeah i mean really this is no different than how all vcs work or nearly all vcs work yeah, like you'll different have different. one partner who is you know specialized in saas another partner who's specialized you know and maybe for the fintech sector, sector or whatever another partner that's on healthcare and another partner that's doing you know yeah. uh, ai or something and, and so gen AI, so like, you, you know, then, so, so we cover multiple sectors and we're quite generalist when, in those areas, but we have the technical capability to help those companies deliver. And in particular, we really are focused in human and planetary health with planetary health being 65% of what we do, um, you know, really changing the means of production of how we produce the products that we consume as a, as a society and as a world.
0: Okay, so now is time for our shout-out segment. Love is
1: in the
0: Sean, we use this segment to ask our guests to give a shout-out to a co-investor, Angel, or LP for being awesome. And of course, whenever possible, to share the story behind that awesomeness.
1: Well, I, you know, I cannot... Uh, we work with hundreds of other VCs. So I cannot just name one uh, VC or uh, other investor. Uh, I, I'd be leaving out so many other investors that have continuously faced up to the, these challenges, continuously funded or tried to turn around these dire situations, um, and gloriously succeeding when when they when they do. Um, I, I really actually love spending time with the VCs on the boards that i'm on they're you know despite how time consuming it is most vcs and cvcs are incredibly professional but you did ask for some love uh so you know i'll point out like we have we have we love lps that like to co-invest with us um not just investing in our fund but also leading rounds in our startups uh and or helping fill out rounds there's this one uh investor, I'll call out by name Ashwath Mera, who's actually on two of our uh, LPAC committees. He's been with us since SOSB3, our first fund that was open to the public. Um, And he finds time and energy to back more than a dozen of our startups uh, with his support and his advice. And he's a leader on the the companies he does come in on. And we, you know, I'll give him a, a special shout out and also, you know calling back to my the earliest days when you're getting started, uh, you know, uh, Alex, uh, um, Hawkinson from Tiedemann, you know, he was really the very first institutional investor to pull the trigger on our first fund SOS three, uh, and he, you know, and he tripled down on, on the next, uh, fund size, bringing in other institutions as well, um, on our second fund. And I, and just to give you an idea, like, on that first fund, I put in a hundred million dollars of my own money into uh, wow. SOS V3. Um, and I thought I was going to raise like a, a $300 million fund or something like that. Nobody showed up. It was like <laughs> me with my hundred million dollars. And like the model is just too crazy, right? This, this, How could this ever succeed? You know, this is weird. It's in all these different geographies. They've got this yeah. accelerator model <laughs> who really knows if that's going to work, you know, and, and we we started with accelerators We move. We don't do accelerators anymore. It's more of the sort of studio yeah. model kind of thing. Much more advanced, much more capital. We put a lot more capital into our companies. But but uh, but, uh, you know, so we got like, you know, everybody. The only people that put money in were people that had already worked with me. You've know, been on boards with me before, who I'd funded, who became multimillionaires as, as a result of, you know, my investments to them, et cetera. And then you know they came in, and that was it. And then so Alex, actually from Tiedemann, or before that, he had, it was a different Tiedemann acquired as the, the the group that he uh, was working for. But it it's uh, it was actually a huge deal to get this sort of institutional uh, you know investor in, and with all the foundations that he brought in, and other 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 people, you know, huge shout out to Alex. He had the faith.
2: amazing sean i think anyone who's listening to this can hear david and i uh uh laughing a small bit and also see us nodding if they've got the video on because you've got some great stories uh and i think that you you're you're saying something here about alex and and the importance of getting that first institutional money into a fund yeah it is incredibly important and life-changing for any fund but sean All throughout our interview, I've also been sitting here dying to hear the three biggest learnings from a man like you who've built SOSV into a behemoth of 1.5 billion AOM. So I just want to kick it up to you and say, tell us what's your three core learnings.
1: Well, number one, uh, by the time it's big, it's too late, right? So do not (laughs) pursue the flash in the pan. Like there's the, this is what happens and always happens in the VC market. An area gets hot and people follow through with derivative investments. It's too late, guys. It's too late. And I'd say that this is not entirely true. You know, there's some generative AI stuff that is super, super, super hot right now. And if you were to get in at sort of the pre-seed stage and, you know, back a founder, but when pre-seed becomes $100, $100 million round, it's too late, you know. Uh, you know, that that's not right, you know, and there are precede rounds that are going out at hundred million dollars being raised. Right. You know, and so there's this whole, you know, falseness. And this, this happened in social media. It happened in crypto. And it's happening right now in generative AI. If you're not among the first movers, you're just going to be burning money. Number two. Steady on. There's a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of flashy people that come in into this game adventure, venture, and there's been a huge number. I mean, you know, saying a lot of arrogant things, they haven't really necessarily done anything in their lives, right? They're, they're actually, they haven't necessarily built anything. Um, it's not just the Donald Trump types, right, who will lie about anything. Uh, in fact, 10% of Wall Street are narcissistic psychopaths. And a similar percent of CEOs are narcissistic psychopaths. So you really have to root those folks out, uh, because, you know, I, as we're recording this, Trump just get another indictment, uh, you know, for another, uh, you know, for, for trying to overthrow the elections just last night. Right. So, but that, you know, that was a pattern that had been established his whole life. You have to go into. Before he was president, he was already, you know, uh, uh, convicted of multiple uh, crimes and got, got, got himself off. I mean, he, this guy has been a crime maker, a criminal his whole life. So if there's anything to learn, you know, it's, it's about doing rather than saying. So do not listen to what they say. Listen to what they have uh, done or look at what they've done and find out the truth about that in terms of the people you're backing. And, and stay steady with those people, you know, just, just, you know, just ignore the fact that there's these flash in the pans that, that come out with their big, big, uh, views on life and, and don't actually have any real history of, of creating something from nothing. And the third, um, if you're going to be huge in venture, you're, it's really, it's a, it's a multi-decade game. The first decade is the decade when you're building your own first business, you know, when you're an entrepreneur yourself, when you're doing the work, when you're establishing that you can build something from nothing and that, that first decade gives you the credibility to then go and be helpful to the next set of entrepreneurs coming after you to give advice. And this is particularly true. I'm I'm really speaking to early stage investors rather than sort of the series B investors or or whatever. You can just go to MBA school and invest and, and be an investor At at later stages, but when you're actually in with founders as they are just learning to grow the business and and dealing with the layoffs and and dealing with the, you know, the, the difficult challenges when a customer doesn't come through or when you have to hire or fire people, you really need advice of an operator that has done this before. And therefore, this experience of building a business is incredibly critical Um, And we always get operators at SOSV that can really advise our startups on how to run and build their business. So the second decade, so first first decade is just being an entrepreneur, building multinational, multimillion dollar businesses, and that gives you the credibility to play the game as a VC. The second is as an investor, just learning all the stages. You, You know, you have to go in and actually go through with many exits, you know, the whole process of taking a company, getting them to MA, even taking them to IPO, you know, knowing what that process is like. And that is just providing the grounding or the foundation for that next decade, which is really taking all those lessons, you know, that you've learned as a VC and continuing to build off of that, that marvelous network that you've built in your, in your first decade as a VC and, and expand on, on the, Capital that you're able to attract as you as you have succeeded.
2: Incredibly exciting, here. I think you explained so well your position on the first part, which is that you need to be an operator or, or, or maybe even a founder uh, to be a VC. So I will not dive more into that because we can always steelman the opposite perspective. Um, but I think that we've all heard that that discussion so many times. So I'd rather use the energy here to dive into the second stage and say, well, taking, you know having taken as many companies as you have now from the very early pre-seed stages all the way to the IPO stages in hard work, which honestly, we do not have too many VC investors who have done. I'd love yeah. to ask you to all the people that are now doing this and raising these funds or generalists diving into doing more hard work. What are the main pitfalls? What are the things that you're seeing that people should really keep top of mind if they want to play the hardware game?
1: Well, I I don't even think of it as the hardware game. I think of it as the climate change game or in the healthcare game, right? So like if you're going to affect real world changes in, you know, say decarbonization, for example, what creates the carbon in the first place? it's physical processes, it's the chemical industry, it's mechanical, it's it's building things, um, it's concrete, it's all of these things. Um, you're not going to solve those issues with software approaches. I mean, software can help on the edges and it's essential to be part of uh, so- solutions, hardware solutions and biomechanical solutions or biological solutions to these problems. But like if you want to make a difference in climate, you really need to have either hard, hardware expertise, building, manufacturing, reinventing the means of production of how we produce everything from our food to our buildings and our built environment to our energy supply, et cetera. These are deep tech issues. This is what we concentrate on. And if you're passionate about that, you know you have to be in hardware and you have to be in life sciences because life sciences is, is the efficient way of often using biology as a technology to produce things at 30 times to 300 times less carbon emitting approaches. For example, you produce meat without cows or milk without uh, cows or, or, um, you know, concrete, which doesn't, um, you know, generate a huge amount of uh, waste gases or, you know, all the methane sources, et cetera. All these things are real deep tech problems. So if you care about these problems, you have to be in hardware or in life sciences. So uh, in terms of the issue of how to be successful in hardware, like this is, I I don't think of there's a lot of people that came at hardware and they came at it from the consumer applications uh, first. And we've done a lot of consumer companies as well. Um, Consumer companies, it's it's hard to, uh, it's hard to really make that work, you know, the, the Hit ratio is one out of every 20 or something, um, and that is a difficult business to make uh, work. Um, and the capital equipment costs, even though they're much, much lower than they used to be, we rarely do consumer hardware. We do find some uh, companies uh, that, we, that we back these days, but we're doing more industrial applications these days um, for manufacturing, transportation, for energy, for recycling, for mining, applications and in these areas um you know the the thing is to have some specialty you know have done it yourself you know have actually built hardware companies uh and been through it before we've backed over 200 hardware companies many of them are uh, on the shelves of 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 stores with our consumer products and and hundreds of them are actually in industrial applications uh in, in industries you know, redefining our manufacturing of textiles and, and, and clothing uh, manufacturing and redefining how we produce our foods.
2: You specifically decided to build with, that's now not called Accelerator, but Studio model, where you had the wet labs and so on. How do you see investors that don't have that type of, uh, you know, um, access themselves? Do you do you feel that there's an issue there and, and and that that founders should be be thinking twice or 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 do you see more that well we all have complementary investors and we all have complementary uh, ecosystem players and for that reason it doesn't have to sit with the investor? What's your thinking here?
1: Yeah, well no I mean you know most of the the deep tech investors that are going into hardware or life sciences that need these labs and whatnot they're coming out of either universities or they're coming out of research institutions, et cetera. Um, And they can, you know, they can use those resources up until they really want to commercialize them. And then at the time that they want to commercialize them, uh, a lot of times it'll, it'll take a few million dollars of funding. So there's that gap between, you know, where they are trying to leave their university or whatever and where they need to raise a couple million dollars. Sometimes they can do that, just off of the back of however far they've gone, most of the times they need to get some sort of pre-seed or seed round in, in the middle. And um, so we look at ourselves as, as the supply chain for the rest of the VC industry. I mean, we only take a small portion of the companies, you know, you know, 10%, you know, 12%, something like that for the first half a million dollar investment that we, that we put in quarter million to half a million dollar investment that we put into these companies. So we, you know, they, they can use all of our resources, et cetera, but then we have 250 investors that come right after us at the seed level and at the series a level. And so we look at ourselves as just performing a role of service to the rest of the venture capital industry. Um, the, there are others that, you know, uh, can perhaps get funded with a couple million dollars directly out of their university. Um, and that's a possibility we, still think we have a lot of value to add to those companies as well. Um, And, um, and certainly, you know, 70% of the companies that go through our programs will receive, uh, you know, on average $3 million or so after they graduate our programs. So, uh, and sometimes it'll be even bigger rounds, 10, 10, $15 million rounds. So like the, the idea is to, in terms of how other people compete with us, I don't know really, and I don't care. You know, uh, <laughs> th- like we were able to sort of invest tens of millions of dollars and, and build out these facilities, and, and have we have a bit of overhead here. You know, we have, you know, the, the all these PhDs and whatnot, and, and and so we're taking a small bit of equity uh, in exchange for the overhead that we have. Uh, we like that where we sit in the marketplace. There's a couple of people that MIT has, the, you know, the engine. Yeah, the um, engine yeah. It's very, very, very focused on um, Boston. Like 50 of the 55 people that they've backed are all from Boston. So we try to be thinking more globally and and getting companies uh, more globally. Yeah. Uh, and so, but other than that, um, like it's it's hard for for most people to do this without. Uh, depending on the universities as, as the source. Yeah, and
2: that's also, and, that, and that's why I asked the question, because I remember from back in my early days in venture, it, that was in the deep tech hardware space. And I was definitely seeing that you ha- as an entrepreneur, you get to this point where all of a sudden you're starting to feel the university and the grants and, and so on are starting to have to kick you out because they're not allowed to have you there anymore. And yeah. all the venture investors and angels are saying it's too early. Well, we're not ready to take that risk.
0: Yeah, <laughs>
1: um, I mean, so that that's our role is is we come in in that intermediate period, we de-risk the investments, we get the prototypes to a a production level or at least benchtop readiness level, and then we de-risk it so VCs can feel more comfortable about coming in, yeah. and then we'll participate in those rounds as well to so help fill out the rounds.
2: That's a huge role for investors like you in many, many, many ecosystems because we do not have it in most countries yet uh, where you have the combination of having risk capital that's willing to take the, take the risk, but you then also have someone who knows how to commercially invest and, and, and build companies and at the same time be able to, to take the grant money and, and, and the, uh, the development money from the states to then put that to that type of fuse because we are seeing that when those two things are being done not connected, <laughs> then then they can have a difficult time actually playing well in parallel.
1: Well, I, I would also add that you're not going to be successful if you have the kind of overhead that we have, unless you are dealing with a, the whole world's deal flow. Like, we are actually able to attract the best companies in the world. And as a result, we can make the infrastructure work. If you were in a smaller country, if you're trying to do this for a Scandinavian country or the UK or or, or something like that, with only 50 million people you know and you're trying to there's just not going to be that many companies coming out that that could support that level of investment uh and be practical and also get the next level of investment yeah. you know you need a lot of the companies to be successful at getting that next round of investment or else you're just going to be burning through taxpayer dollars
0: and now it's time for the quick fire round where sean will ask you three quick answer questions <laughs> And now the quick fire. Quick fire. Quick fire. Quick fire. Quick fire. What advice would you give your 10-year younger self, Sean? I'd say number 1,
1: don't be a pushover. It helps when everybody in your organization or everybody in the the companies you back know that they have to do the best work of their lives. You ha- you have to hold uh, high standards, and so do not compromise on that. It's it's the point of pride I, I say as well um, that people will know that they've done the best work of their lives, and they're willing to put put that put that in in making that happen. Number two, finish what you start. Um, I think that is a. The challenge that we often have, we try to do too many things and then we don't finish anything. Just pick your priorities, choose the thing that really matters, and then finish it. Number three, um, cut your losses. If you get to a place where it's a fundamental fail, and even if you've invested a lot of money in the company, um, you, you should be prepared to just flush the investment. And this is especially true... If there's a founder that's showing uh, dishonest or disingenuous traits with you, if they're not being completely uh, open about the challenges and the struggles that they're having, you should just figure out how to rescue as much value of the investment as you can, but then cut it and move on.
2: Now, Sean, what are your top tips for emerging VCs that are fundraising?
1: This is a really tough time, you know? I, I would say, I, as I've spoken to this before, show you can build a multinational, multi-million dollar business by starting and building one. That gives you the credibility to advise others on how to do the same, do that first. But then you ask, wh- what should they do for, you know, for fundraising in particular? So uh, this is a hard time for fundraising. It is taking much longer than than ever before. Uh, to, to fundraise. So, um, I'd say probably, uh, figure out how you can do, uh, the best you can and raise the money for 12 months and then stop fundraising and focus on, uh, backing the, the
0: businesses with whatever money that you've raised in that period of time. And what's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in venture?
1: Well, I'd say that's Everyone thinks that they know the winners from the moment that they meet them. Um, and that's not really true. As we've talked about, you, you know, you're a genius. If considered a genius inventor of one out of 10 times, you're right. Um, you can't really predict one, which one of your startups is, is gonna return the fund. So go with your gut back to the full level of your conviction, but spread your bets. You'll be surprised how often it's, it's an unproven team that ends up winning.
2: All right, Sean, before we wrap up, we cannot let you go without asking you to give us a controversial opinion or belief that you have. And we'll share this with future guests for them to give us their take on whatever you're about to say.
1: Entrepreneurship, it's a blood sport. The founders are constantly battling in the arena uh, and and ultimately the majority of them are not going to be successful in changing the world in that particular startup anyway. They, they leave a piece of themselves on the fields. That, and our job as venture capitalists is to be coach and confidant, help the company fight the good fight, help the founder get up after being knocked down, and to some extent, help them realize when the fight is over. We, we hope that every time, even if the company fails, the founder succeeds and by having tried and, and, and grown through the battle. But my controversial uh, statement here is... Uh, leadership is not about creating followers it's about creating leaders if the startup or the movement is going to succeed it's going to require other leaders to inspire and spread the mission and so i think too many people focus on just being great leaders without realizing that being a great leader is really about creating other great leaders
2: wow that's a wrap Thanks a million, everyone, for listening in. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of the European VC podcast as much as we did. Drop us a review, follow the pod, and subscribe at EUVC.
0: I am David, joined by my co-host, Andreas. And thank you so much for tuning in. And we can't wait to see you all out there. Tear down this wall. It's more than just an alliance. alliance. This this is a union of values. values.
2: United and determined. We can serve as a model for other regions of the world.
0: The nature of a problem, problem requires a European
2: response. Europe is a story of new beginnings, new new beginnings. Let's start acting. Act-